Well, this morning's message is entitled, Sinner or Saint. Sinner or Saint. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about living between two truths. This is under the, the sermon series, The Whole Truth. Often the Bible presents truths that appear, appear to be going in opposite direction from each other. Some might even suggest that they would be contradictory to each other, but they really aren't. They're not contradictory. The Bible, as we know, is one harmonious book with one divine mind behind the many books within the Bible. As Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 and verse 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. The scriptures cannot be broken. For example, there are some who view the or see the Old Testament and they see the New Testament to be in conflict at odds with each other. But that can't be right. If the scriptures cannot be broken, that can't be right. Others view the biblical truth, let's say, of God's sovereignty, his rulership over the world and over the universe and, and orchestrating events and affairs behind the scenes to bring about his glorious end and purpose for his saints. Some see God's sovereignty and the equally important biblical truth of man's free will, our ability to freely choose. God has given us the ability to choose whether we want to serve him or not. He would wish that we would serve him, but we have the ability to choose. God has given us free reign. He doesn't want us to be ro robots. So some see the truth about God's sovereignty and the equally important truth about God's free will as being at odds with each other. But if we understand these two important biblical teachings as hemispheres that when held together make up a complete sphere of truth, then it becomes very difficult for us to see these truths, for example, God's sovereignty and man's free will, at being at odds with each other. We would see them rather as being complementary to each other. We also talked about the ellipse of truth, the ellipse of truth. Each ellipse typically has two focal points, whereas a circle has one. You've got an ellipse that has two focal points. And when they're kept close together, it makes an ellipse. When these focal points, however, are separated and you extend them out, if I, had, uh, if I just held up my fingers right here and you were looking at my fingers and you were closer to me than where you are, and, uh, and, and I move them further and further apart, how much easier does it become to see those, uh, my two fingers, those two focal points? It becomes much more difficult. The ellipse only works when those two points are kept relatively close to each other as in the picture up there. If we were widen the gap between, uh, let's say, the biblical truths of faith and works, because there are some who feel and see that those teachings are at odds with each other. You've got the Apostle Paul, who is a strong proponent of uh, salvation, justification by faith and then you get to the book of James and James talks about being justified by our works and so some folks say hang on these things are contradictory to each other and they're really not when held together within the sphere of truth it becomes it's easier to see that we have the we see a complete picture within that particular ellipse if we move them apart those truths apart we prop one up uh, to the detriment of the other or vice versa then the ellipse is completely destroyed the last time we talked, we talked about strings on a guitar, like the string guitar strings that have a healthy tension so that good music can be played on the guitar or a violin or a harp. Uh, biblical twin truths, uh, let's say, for example, like love and obedience, because some view and see the teachings of the biblical teaching of love and the biblical teaching of obedience as being at odds with each other. But when we keep those those truths, love and obedience, are kept in healthy tension to each other so that God uh, can play, we keep them in healthy tension to each other so God can play beautiful music through our lives. Uh, we keep those things together. This is God's truth. Now, we can also view truth, and I had a dear brother come to me after my first presentation. He said, you know, he said, uh, he said, Pastor, he said, you know, you're talking about twin truths and uh, the ellipse of truth and the two hemispheres of truth. He said, if we talk about and we understand truths being connected to Jesus, then it's hard to separate those truths if those truths are found in Jesus. And so we can also, and I appreciated that, that, that feedback, it got me to thinking. We can also view truths, these truths as two arms 
that extend from the one who is the truth, and namely that is Jesus. Now, uh, just as Jesus can't be divided, neither can uh, these truths be divided. Now, I'm just taking my jacket off for a second because um, I'm going to ask James and Robert to come up and help me with just a little illustration. I ask them to please be gentle. Please be gentle. Um, please be gentle. I told them this may be their first or last, and last time that they do this. So sometimes people have a problem with the two biblical teachings, for example, of justification and sanctification. Are they at odds with one another? So my right arm is, to your left, is justification, and my left arm is sanctification. Now, if the gentlemen pull on my arms gently, gently, but if they were to pull on my arms, my arms won't come off too easily, will they? At least if they keep pulling hard, they, they may come off, but my arms aren't going to come off my body. They're not going to be severed from my body. Uh, let's take the truths, for example, the biblical truths of, um, we talked about love and obedience. Let's talk about grace and, uh, grace and uh, the law. Some people see the, that God's grace is opposed to God's law. God's law is opposed to God's grace. And again, if they were to pull these two truths from the body, which is my body, it's, it's hard to sever the truths from the body. In this case, not in my case, but in this case, we're talking about Jesus. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate that. Now my arms are a little longer. So you can't, you can't separate the, the, these twin truths or these arms of truth, especially when they extend from Jesus, who is, the, who is the truth, right? It's impossible to do that. We cannot sever. Just as Jesus can't be divided, neither can these truths. They're all found in the Word of God. They're found in Jesus, who is the living Word. So this morning, I'd like to talk with you about another two arms, if you please, of truth that cannot be separated from each other. Uh, how would you react? I, I think I know how I'd react. How would you react if you woke up one morning to discover that a breakaway blimp had landed in your backyard? Now, some of you have a larger backyard than others, but if your backyard's not that big, you're going to notice a blimp in your backyard. That's exactly what happened to a 94-year-old woman from Ohio not too long ago I read about. It was a 128-foot-long blimp that, that broke free from its moorings in uh, Columbus and uh, it broke free from the airport. Strong winds took it up, drifted into the sky, and then it headed eastward, and it landed in Lillian Bernhagen's backyard in Worthington, Ohio. Now, while this experience can definitely be rated as surprising, this doesn't compare to the unfortunate and the needless reaction of shock and horror many new Christians have when they discover, after having accepted Jesus as their Savior, that not everything in their life is taken care of as they expected. What do I mean? I can't tell you how many new believers, and sometimes even older believers, find themselves down and out when they discover, for example, that certain cravings that they had before they gave, to Jesus, gave their lives to Jesus still exist after they give their hearts to Jesus. Um, sometimes their love for this particular thing doesn't automatically drop off, or their affection for certain things, and you fill in the blank, don't drop off right away. They still experience a pull in that particular direction. Uh, the taste buds haven't automatically switched gears, and so the question is asked, is this to be expected? Is this normal for a, a, a Christian to be experiencing these pulls? Now, in Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we are new creatures in, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And while the old has been forgiven, we've given it to Jesus and he's forgiven it and he's washed it away, we still, and, and while we've been given new motives, and while we've been given new purposes, and while we've been given new intentions, that's what it means to be a new creation, it does not mean that the old won't try and rear its ugly head from time to time. Uh, a man could be singing a hymn of praise right here in this church and then be looking a few aisles, a few rows down and he sees a beautiful woman and his mind drifts. Or someone else could be helping someone and, the same, and at the same time while you're helping someone you're thinking about how good you are or you're tempted to at least think about how good you are that you're helping somebody. Every child of God has dealt with these types of contradictions in their lives. We desire the right, but sometimes the wrong calls us and we often stop 
and we listen to its call. We always want to be in the right, in right relationship to God and we want to follow His ways. And yet, on the other hand, there is a pull at times to choose our own way and to be independent of God. You've sung it in a hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, made the following words famous, and I'm not going to share them with you in Latin because I cannot speak Latin, but in English it says, at the same time, saint and sinner. At the same time, saint and sinner. Could Luther be right? <laughs> now, just hold tight. We'll clarify definitions. We'll clarify terms in just a moment. Neither of these words, sinner or saints, make us comfortable. But both could be true of the Christian. Is it true that they could be true of a Christian? Is it true how the words, if it is true, how do the words of the Apostle Paul apply to this situation? When in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17, he wrote this, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now there is a new reality for those that are in Christ, and in Christ, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to make right living very possible. On the other hand, there is the old tendency towards sin, which has not been destroyed. God has not seen fit to make us righteous robots, and so thereby we have the ability to choose. As one person put it, he said, the old man has been drowned in baptism, but the rascal can surely swim. But before we answer the question of whether Christians are both saint and sinner, let's define what these terms mean. Let's talk about sin and sinners to begin with. Sinner comes from the word sin. And that word sin means to miss the mark. It means to fall short, to do wrong, to offend, to be culpable, to commit a sin. It's basically any deviation from the known will of God, either of neglect to do what He has specifically commanded or of doing what He has specifically forbidden. As we know, sin originated with Lucifer as a result of his inordinate pride and uh, in the beauty and the wisdom that God had given him and of an overconfident desire and jealousy for what God had not given him. Sin entered the earth when Satan persuaded Adam and Eve to take that which God had reserved for himself. And under the subterfuge that they might attain to a superior wisdom, they accepted his, his question. They accepted his invitation. According to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, he says, By one man's sin, sin entered into the world, and as a result, all have sinned. I want you to look with me at verse 19 of Romans chapter 5 as we take a look here. Romans chapter 5 and verse 19, this is what he says. Again, we just read verse 12, but look at verse 19. He says, for as one by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. I love it how Paul leaves us with hope. He doesn't leave us stranded or abandoned or, or feeling discouraged. But he gives us hope and says, just as one man's obedience, through his obedience, we shall all be made righteous, talking, of course, of Jesus. But before that, he says, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. The word sinner in the Bible is used 28 times, about 13 times in the New Testament. It definitely has a negative con uh, connotation. Uh, you, you and I do not want to be considered sinners. Many times the word is used alongside in the Bible, alongside the word ungodly. The religious leaders considered those who didn't adhere to Jewish traditions to be sinners. Sinners were also those considered to be living in open and flagrant sin. The context the word is used in usually helps in determining in what way the word sinner is being used. According to the Bible, all human beings are affected by sin. We agree there, amen? There's no doubt about that. Any moral good that we have is from outside of ourselves. It comes from, from God. In the Bible, 
Words for sin can refer to either our fallen nature. You remember uh, David in Psalms 51 and verse four, 51 verse 4 said, In sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, he was talking about man's sinful nature that we are, we're born with. So sin can refer to our fallen nature. Uh, Romans 7, 17, Paul says, sin dwells in me. Again, he's referring to our fallen sinful nature. So sin can refer to either our fallen nature or specific infractions against God's law. For example, 1 John 3, verse 4. For sin is the transgression of the, of the law. That's right. So sins as violations of God's law. And by the way, when we break God's law, we break His heart, don't we? There's no doubt about that. So sins as violation of God's law can be actions or they can be thoughts. They can be deliberate. They can be inadvertent. They can even be unintentional, but they are never automatic. We always choose if we are going to sin or not. Frankly, as you know, as well as I do, sin is a bad trade. Some years ago, you may be familiar with the story of Roy Wettstein, he uh, went to a rock exhibition to buy an agate, which is an ornamental stone. Uh, and he went to buy that agate for, uh, an agate for each of his sons. Uh, at one of the tables, he saw a, uh, some stones inside a Tupperware container, which was marked, any stone for $15. He picked up a potato-sized rock, and he asked the vendor, you want $15 for this? And the man said, well, I'll give it to you for $10, because it's not as pretty as the other agates. Roy bought that particular stone for $10, and he could hardly contain himself. He had just purchased, at that particular time, the world's largest star sapphire stone, 1,509 carats, valued at $2.5 million uncut, and valued at about $10 million cut. Now, that's the kind of bad trade sin is. Many give up the priceless sapphire of salvation for prettier gates of this world that carry little to no value whatsoever. Certainly sin is a bad trade. Because of the entrance of sin into this world, you and I are all born with a bent toward sin. We, have all, uh, we are all born with an innate pull toward those things that do not please God. We drift toward sin. I shared this little illustration with you. It was I know it's a little humorous, but it's true. Uh, my cousin and his family are visiting from, uh, from Australia, and, um, and so I always like to ask anyone traveling from the country that drives on the op opposite side of the road, how are you adjusting to driving on this side of the road? When I uh, first came to the United States, uh, of course, we're accustomed in Australia to driving on the, what side of the road do we drive on here? The right side, right? So in Australia, we drive on the left side, I've forgotten. We drive on the left side. Don't, you don't want to drive around me when I'm on the road. Um, you, we drive on the left side, which frankly is the right side. Okay, just want to make sure you understand that. So, um, so when I came to the States, I had to learn to adjust my thinking to driving on the, the wrong side of the road, which was right. Okay, so I'm driving, driving one particular day. I'd been in the States for about two years, and I'm driving from college to on a work assignment down the street. It was a backcountry road, and uh, I noticed there was a car coming down, uh, down the road, and they were driving on my side of the road. And I couldn't believe it. I said, this is not going to get, this is, this is going to be ugly. Who in their right mind would be thinking about driving on the wrong side of the road? They're on my side of the road. And just before that car came, and he was slowing down, and I was slowing down, I realized that the fool was me. I'd actually drifted over onto the other side of the road thinking, my mind was thinking that it was back home in Australia after two years. That's what I'd learned, that's the side of the road I'd learned to drive and that's the things, that's the, that's the habits, those are the, the way my mind worked. And here I was on the opposite side of the road. There was no car accident. I don't know if he waved at me or what that was, but he uh, passed on by <laughs> and uh, we moved right along. And I learned a very, very important lesson I learned a lesson, a spiritual lesson, because this is how we're born into the world. We have a bent, a leaning towards sin. Like I drifted to the other side of the road, our minds, our natures drift toward those things that do not please God. That's what happened. That's what we inherited from our first parents. Uh, Martin Luther, again, Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, hit the nail on the head when he pictured people as being curved in upon themselves. In failing to acknowledge God, people become diverted from God and inverted upon themselves. 
Uh, we become, for example, like the shavings, freshly planed from a piece of wood that naturally curl in around themselves. We become separated from the source of life. Our thinking, our perception, our way of knowing all becomes distorted when we separate ourselves from God. Paul described the human condition in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, when he said, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, inverted, curled in around ourselves, you see. To be human, in other words, to be human is to be a sinner. We are not born sinners in the sense that we are born conscious violators of God's law. No, no, no. We are born with the disposition to become sinners. I would suggest that we become sinners once we knowingly violate God's express will, His law, and thus His heart. Because the Bible says that all have sinned in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then that makes us all sinners, whether we are outside of Christ or whether we are in Christ. We are all sinners. I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Look at what Paul said about himself, just to give clarity to what I'm referring to. And we're going to come back to this verse shortly. 1 Timothy, over there by the T's, over by the T's, you've got uh, Thessalonians, Timothy, and Titus. You're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Notice, Paul says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save who, friends? Aren't you glad that Jesus came into the world to save sinners? And what did Paul say? Of whom I am chief. Of whom I am chief. So question, when did Paul write this? Was it before his conversion or was it after his conversion? It was after his conversion. More on that later. Hold that point. Let's talk for a brief moment now about a saint. We've talked about being a sinner. Let's talk about being a saint. In our day, the term suggests austere, something austere, something unnatural, someone who's been canonized, or at least something similar to someone who has nearly a visible halo hanging around their heads. Now, we would probably not want to be called saints because we feel as though we probably don't fit into that category. It doesn't help to learn, us, learn either that when you translate the word saint, it means actually holy. Uh, when you translate saint in the King James Version, it literally means holy one. Holy is no better than saint. We don't qualify, it seems, for either. To think of being a saint as something akin to earning a merit badge is frankly to misconstrue the biblical term saint. When the New Testament describes uh, people as saints or holy ones, the thought is not only about moral behavior, but it's also with regard to their position, their standing with God. The word holy describes something separated, something set apart. Uh, the word sanctified, for example, is uh, akin to the word holy or saint. It's set apart for a holy use. God is holy. And so, because he is separated from humans, God cannot be grouped with us and be of the same kind, because he's not the same kind of being. He is God, he is holy. He is separate from us in that sense. Now, Paul, he wrote to the Corinthians, and I want you to turn there with me to, if you can, 1 Corinthians chapter one, uh, 1, verse 2. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he says something interesting. He introduced himself, introduced himself, talked to them, and he declared them something very interesting. And Paul would often uh, use this same phrase when he wrote to some of the other churches, for example, Ephesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, he said, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are what? Sanctified in Christ Jesus, and what? Called to be what? Saints. So here you've got those who are sanctified, called, and called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and uh, ours. Now, people who are sanctified are those who have been set apart by God. The point in all three of these terms, sanctified, called, and saints, is to emphasize the fact that God has separated us to himself and has given us a new standing in Christ. To be a saint 
means to be separated to God. That's what it means. It not only refers to God's action apart from ours, we come to Him by faith in repentance, we say, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner, and God declares us, He forgives us, and declares us to be His saint. He sets us apart. The work of justification brings with it the work of sanctification. God separates us to Himself and for holy purposes. So it not only refers to God's action apart from ours, but it also includes the responsibility that is ours to live lives that are also holy by God's grace. However, we cannot live separate lives without being separated first. Because God has separated us to Himself, we are to live in conformity to who He is. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, uh, Peter, quoting Leviticus, writes and commands us, Be holy. And God says, Be holy, for I am holy holy. That's a command. Of course, God has given us the Holy Spirit to make holy living possible. In many cases in the Bible, the word saint is used to refer not to those who are a completed work, but to those who are a work in progress. Look with me at Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, if you would. A familiar passage to each of us, and, um, and notice uh, what God declares His last day people to be. By the way, when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church and he, de and he declares them to be saints, sanctified, set apart, called to be saints, when you read the, the book, when you read Paul's letter to the, the church in Corinth, he wrote two letters. Did, the Cor did some of the members in Corinth have a problem? Some of the members in Corinth had a problem, and that's what the letter was written to address, and yet he still called them saints. Now, don't get me wrong. Not, not suggesting here that, uh, that sin is condoned or, or uh, a, a wrong or bad theology is condoned just because you're called a saint. The point being here is God first separates us to Himself and then, and then works in us, as I've mentioned before and as I've quoted before, to both will and to do of His good pleasure, to make us holy. He first separates us from the world, first separates us from, from sin, and then, he, and then He works in us to overcome sin by His grace through the Holy Spirit, you see. Notice, notice Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. It says here, talking about God's last day people, it says, here are, or here is, the patience of who? The saints. So just prior to this, you've got a three-point message under the umbrella of the everlasting gospel that's got to go to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. And uh, there are people who respond to this message. There are people who accept this message in these last days. And God calls them His saints. Here are those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Does that sound like it's something that they've already arrived at or is something that is progressive and continuing to happen in their lives each and every day? It's something that's occurring each and every day, is it not? Surely there's no doubt about that. If you're in need of the faith of Christ, then have you arrived or are you still on your way? You're still on your way, you see. So if you've accepted Jesus as Savior and you've accepted Him as Lord, then you are a saint. Then you are a saint. Okay. So let's dig a little deeper here and see if we can answer the question, sinless sinners or sinning saints? We're going to go to 1 John and we're going to go to chapter 1. And uh, here we have in this book, it helps us understand, there, there are uh, two passages of Scripture that help us understand the two arms of truth. It's very likely that we are both sinner and saint at the same time. And these two arms cannot be separated from Jesus who is the truth. These, these verses help us, or these passages, help us understand the reality that Christians live with on a day-to-day -day basis. This letter has often caused uh, commentators some trouble because the two sections of the book that we're going to read here often appear to contradict each other. But let's take a look. First John chapter 1, and we're going to read, start starting with verse 6, and we're going to read right through to chapter 2 and verse 2. So let's read. Notice. John says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So John makes several points in these verses. And just follow along with me here. Number one, he says, claiming to have fellowship with God while living a sinful life, living in the darkness is a lie. Number two, properly living or living in the light, proper living, properly living, brings fellowship with one another and cleansing through Christ's sacrificial death. We read that in verse seven. And then we Point number three that he makes. If one makes the claim that they, no longer, they are no longer sinning, then they are lying and are out of touch with the truth. Fourth, confession of sin leads to forgiveness and cleansing of sin. And then five, Christians should not sin. But if they do, Jesus intercedes for them and, uh, and is the means of restoring uh, their relationship with God. So these are the points that Paul makes, five points that he makes right here in these particular verses. Clearly, John was objecting to the claims of some that uh, suggested they were out without sin and without guilt. He rejects this perfectionism. Let me explain that word to you, this perfectionism. That's different from character, biblical character perfection. Perfectionism, the teaching that suggests one has reached a point in their lives where they can never sin. Where they can never sin versus will not sin. There's a difference. That's what perfectionism is. And so he was, he was opposed to and rejected this, this, this idea as a possibility and presents instead a theology of ongoing confession, forgiveness, cleansing through Christ. But then we come to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Notice what he says. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not what? Sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let, one, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has, be, has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God are the, and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. All right. Now, this passage on the surface appears to some to contradict the previous section we read. Earlier, John is, had said that if we say we, we do not sin, then we are liars. Here we find that the one remaining in Christ is not sinning and is not able to sin because God's seed remains in him or her. Furthermore, the, sinning does not, uh, the, the one sinning does not know Christ, but he is from the devil. So have both passages of Scripture actually come from the same pen, the same hand? The previous John, uh, pre the problem rather, John was addressing contained two errors that we mentioned. Some people claimed to be living in such close fellowship with God that they no longer sinned and that they were beyond sinning. A heretical perfectionism, not, again, not biblical perfection, was the result. Second, despite claims of fellowship with God, these people were living as if God made no difference in their lives. So the teaching in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through chapter 2, verses 2, was designed to help readers understand the problem and reality of sin and the need for forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. But that alone, however, would not solve the problem, for some would still be living lives antithetical to Jesus Christ. Much of the rest of the letter describes the life required by the Christian. The purpose of the letter can be summed up in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. Notice, 
First John, two, first John 2, verse 6, He who says he abides in him, that is Jesus, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. That's exactly right. So a Christian cannot go on sinning as if being in Christ made no difference. If there has been no change so that love, that love dominates the life, there has been no rebirth. It is this aspect of the teaching that is in view in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. While a sinless perfectionism is to be rejected, our new birth excludes a sinful way of life. Maybe a helpful way to understand 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10 is to focus on the tenses in the Greek verbs. When the writer uh, speaks of sinning, he puts it in the present tense. Uh, this would stress the action, uh, stress that the action is continual. So when you look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 6, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 6, let's read what it says here. It says, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. So whoever abides in him does not sin. Is in fact, whoever abides in him does not continue to sin. And in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not continue to sin. That's what John is writing here. The focus is on a life characterized by sin. Those in Christ cannot live a sinful lifestyle for rebirth has placed God's seed, the seed of his word, the seed of the Holy Spirit in them. Those who live a life characterized by sin do not know God and do not know the Father, you see. So the truth of 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 through 2 and 2, through 2, 2, and 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10 is evident. We cannot, we cannot escape the reality of sin. We cannot. The denial of sin and its guilt is borders on delusional and evidence of distance from God. Sin is to be confessed and forgiven and cleansing are to be found in Christ. Yet on the other hand, sin is not to be taken for, for granted, nor is it to be practiced. Those in Christ cannot live a life characterized by sin. We, we need to know this today. The work of God accomplishes our conversion the work of God that accomplishes our conversion is to be continually at work in us changing our, our lives motivating us to share God's message of love and his end time salvation with others we are sinners but we are saints as we abide and stay connected to Jesus Christ we need Christ this is the message today we need Christ as we need the air we breathe we need his forgiveness and we need his power as much as the food that we eat. That's what this message is all about here this morning. The truth we find in Jesus is that we are Christ's dependence. We are Jesus' dependence. We need him to sustain our spiritual lives every hour. We are not safe for one moment if we let go the hand of God. We are in danger of succumbing to the temptation or the temper, the old temper of the old man, if we don't lean on Jesus for strength. We are no more capable of bearing the fruit of righteousness disconnected from Christ than the severed branch of a fruit tree can produce apples or oranges or peaches, that fruit from that particular tree. Now you remember those words in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Let's go there and take a look at those. Let's take a look at those words again. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. We're going to put all this together here, and we are doing that right now. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. That's what Paul says. Paul essentially is reminding us about the ongoing war. The struggle between the inclination to do right and the inclination to do that which is wrong. Not that one can't overcome the flesh, but that they are powerless to do so in their own strength. And when he's talking about flesh, he's talking about our fallen natures, you see. In the book Great Controversy, page 506, Ellen White says, It is the grace that Christ implants in the soul which creates in man enmity or hatred against Satan. Without this converting grace and renewing power, 
man would continue to be captive to Satan, a servant ever ready to do his bidding. But, I like that word, but, but the new principle in the soul creates conflict where to had been peace. Conflict where? Conflict between us and God? No, no, no. Conflict now between you and who? The devil. Before, you, just went, you and I just went along with his suggestions. But now that new uh, principle put in our hearts at conversion creates uh, opposition to what the devil wants us to do. Conflict. The power which Christ imparts enables man to resist the tyrant and the usurper. Whoever is seen to abhor sin instead of loving it, whoever resists and conquers those passions that have held sway within, displays the operation of a principle wholly from God. Powerful words. Powerful words. Some people suggest we have two natures in us. It would be better to suggest that there are two principles in opposition to each other in us. We're born with one, an inclination to do that which is wrong, to displease God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, Paul says, The carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And yet we come to Jesus and he implants in us a new principle. We are born again. And that fights and wrestles and struggles against the carnal nature. And through Jesus, we can be victorious now and forever. You've got to think about saints of old for just with me for just a moment. Saints of old Moses. The Bible says he was the meekest man that ever lived. His righteous life, friend, was dependent on his constant connection to Jesus. However, in a moment of frustration and exasperation, he unleashed on God's people and ended up being barred from the promised land. His past victories could not atone for this one mistake and what a costly mistake it was. The end of his story teaches you and I today that our, that of, of our constant need of connection to Jesus Christ. Think about David out there in the hills tending to his sheep. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. How would you like to be called a man after God's own heart? He began so well and yet... When he took his eyes off Jesus, he stooped to take another man's wife and then do away with her husband. Now, he ended up repenting and submitting his life to God's will, but the story teaches us that our past connection to Christ has no bearing on our connection with Jesus now. We've got to stay connected to Jesus' sustaining grace. Think about Solomon. Solomon began his rulership well when he answered God's query, what do you want? with the words, I don't know how to come in or to go out, and I need your wisdom to properly lead your people. And yet he drifted from God's will. He turned on himself and sought to satisfy all of his cravings and his desires. The lesson he learned was absolutely bitter. He turned his life back over to God. But it wasn't before he had set the stage for the undoing of the, the nation that he was leading. His story teaches us of our perpetual need of Christ and his saving grace. That's what Paul was saying when he declared, this is a faithful saying in 1 Timothy 1.15. We looked at it earlier. This is what Paul was saying when he declared, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul had a sense of his own unworthiness even after conversion. He does not say, I was chief. He says, I am chief. His humility arises from the memory of his past insults and persecutions done to God and to his church, as well as his awareness of his present insufficiency, apart from the daily sustaining power that God could give him. All God's saints never lose the sense of unworthiness that they experienced when they first surrendered the will to Christ. They know that without the daily indwelling power of God, their life would not reveal the graces of Christian character. In Christ Object Lessons, page 160, and I'm just about finished, it says, the nearer we come to Jesus and the more clearly we discern the purity of His character, the more clearly we shall discern the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the less we shall feel like exalting ourselves. Our only safeguard, friends, is to remember who we were before we came to Jesus, to place no confidence in self and to gladly submit to the will and desires of God each and every day. Now, although we are both sinner, because Paul says, I am chief, right? 
Although we are both sinner and saint, that does not mean that we live anxiety-ridden lives. The Bible offers three strategies to live the life of Christ's end-time saints. Here they are. We're going to put them up on the screen for you. Number one, focus on Jesus. That's the only way we can be victorious. Focus on Jesus. Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We are we know, while we know we are born in sin and live in the sphere of sin and have sinful natures and have sinned, sin is not to be our focus. Christ is to be our focus. As we behold Christ, we continually grow to be more like Him, whom it is said knew no sin. For example, if we take seriously His exception, acceptance of maybe society's outcasts, we too will find the courage and show the grace and sensitivity to people, society, would just as soon forget. As we look to Jesus, the Holy Spirit empowers us for service. His Spirit is given to us as a guarantee of eternal life and the means of effective Christian witness. So number one, focus on Jesus. Number two, be honest. John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. We need to be ruthlessly honest with God, ourselves, and with each other. Someone wrote, honesty requires that we be suspicious about ourselves, our motives, and our desires, to face squarely that we are inverted around ourselves. We're all too ready to go it alone and forget that God exists. We're prone to do this with our time and even with our treasures. How often do we need to consult God about how we spend our time and our money? Do we put God first? Truth is more, the most important ingredient for successful Christian living. Confession merely admits the truth, and worship is telling the truth about God and what He has done for us in Christ Jesus. By acknowledging that we are both sinner and saint, we face the reality of our lives. Honesty requires that we admit that we are always tempted by pride and pleasure. We are capable of any sin. Honesty causes us to remember that we are temporary, that we have brought nothing into this world and that we will take nothing out. Honesty also requires that we view ourselves as God views us. If God says that we are a new life, we have a new life in Christ Jesus, should we believe any less? The determining factor in our lives is not what we have done, but what our standing is with God. We live always by His grace, and that is the truth. And thirdly, thirdly, the third strategy to live the life of Christ's end-time saints is we need to rebel against sin. We need to rebel against sin. Romans chapter 6 verses 12 through 14 suggests that we should push back on sin, rebel against sin, move from under the lordship of sin. We shouldn't think of ourselves as wandering aimlessly between sin and the right living. We ought not give in to sin as if it was inevitable or even acceptable. It is not acceptable and we do not to give in to it. For example, it would be easy to say nobody is perfect, everybody lies a little to protect themselves, What's the, matter if, what's the problem if I do it? But each time that happens, we destroy ourselves a little. Sin is not to be tolerated, and Calvary teaches us that. When Paul discusses Christian living in Romans 6, verses 12 through 14, he calls us for an all-out rebellion against the tyranny of sin. Sin no longer has the right to rule over you, and you and I should not let it. Being a saint is a change of lordships. Sin is no longer Lord. Who's Lord now? Christ. Christ is Lord. After it was disclosed, and now I'm closing, after it was disclosed that President George H.W. Bush had banned broccoli aboard the Air Force One when he was president, the nation apparently became embroiled in a broccoli discussion. As broccoli growers dispatched 10 tons of the vegetable free to Washington, the president reiterated his disdain and distaste with gusto. He said, I do not like broccoli. I have liked it since I was a little kid, and my mother made me eat of it. I'm president of the United States, and I'm not going to eat any more broccoli. <laughs> like the former president of the United States, who rebelled against broccoli, let you and I rebel against sin. What do you say? Rebel, an all-out war 
against sin by God's grace. For now we cannot escape, it's true, our sinful bodies. We cannot escape our evil inclinations. We cannot escape the sinful temptations. But in Christ, we are saints. God's people who he has called and has given his spirit to. Don't you desire to be God's end time saints? I do too. May God help us. May God bless us. May God empower us with his spirit so that we might truly call an all-out war against sin is my prayer. Stand with us as we sing our closing song for all the saints, hymn number 421. It says, and when the strife is fierce, fierce the warfare long. Can you hear? When the strife is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear, long, and hearts are brave again and arms are strong. May your hearts again be brave 
and your arms strong in the battle with the enemy. You don't fight alone. Jesus fights for you. Surrender your wills to him. Trust in his strength and power to help. And know he'll see you right through until he comes again. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we don't need to dilly-dally between with sin. We are saints called by God, separated by God, to live for you, to surrender our hearts, our lives, our wills to you. Thank you, Lord, for your strength. Thank you, Lord, for your power. Thank you, Lord, that you have put it within us by your grace to rebel against sin and to live for Jesus. We want to be among these last day saints spoken of in Revelation 14. And it can only happen as we make a daily surrender to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for accepting us, not as we are, not as we are. You want us to be much more. You take us as we are, and then you make us all that you want us to be. We give you permission to continue that work in our lives. May we be encouraged. May our hearts be strong, our arms strong, ready for the fight as we walk hand in hand with Jesus, as we reflect his goodness in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.